welcome back to Carmelite Conversations, a Christian voice in your home. Uh, it's so great to be back with you today, this week. We are uh, beginning uh, preparation, of course, uh, not too far down the road for Lent, only about a week and a half away. Uh, but tomorrow we'll be celebrating a very special feast known as the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord, the Presentation of Jesus at the Temple. Uh, and so we want to incorporate that into our reflection and our conversation today. And to join me in that conversation here in studio, as she does each week, is Frances Harry. Frances, how are you? Oh, I'm feeling very blessed. Happy to be here with you, Mark, and to have this other wonderful conversation, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, uh, as I say, we are going to begin, as we did last week, with a feast day. That happened to be the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. Uh, this week, we're going to start with the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord in the Temple, but then continue a conversation that Francis and I began last week regarding Contemplative Provocations, a book by Father Donald Haggerty, where he draws and he acknowledges that he draws extensively from St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross to offer up a series of reflections on what it means to enter into contemplative prayer. And as we've said so often, this program's entire theme is about the contemplative experience for all of us, regardless of our state in life. And so uh, Father Haggerty has uh, gifted us with a wonderful text that helps us to do that through, as I say, a series of reflections. And we'll be uh, working with his text both today and for perhaps another couple weeks after this. But why don't we begin in exactly the way that we are suggesting we should all live our lives, and that's with prayer. And I, I think this prayer is um, really good for the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, since we're going to start out talking about that. So let us join together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty and ever-living God, we humbly beseech Thee that as Thy only begotten Son was this day presented in the temple, so through the hands of Mary, our Heavenly Mother, we may be presented to you with pure hearts and souls. Amen. Now I have to ask you, Francis, did you write that yourself? Because I don't recognize it. Where did that come from? <laughs> Anonymous. <laughs> Anonymous. That means she wrote it herself. Well, that's wonderful, and it is absolutely perfect for uh, the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord. And so we're going to uh, begin by reminding ourselves, um, if you think about the uh, rosary meditation where uh, Jesus is presented in the temple, one of the things that we should take away from that is the fact that it is the mother, uh, our Blessed Mother, who presents Jesus in the temple. Of course, St. Joseph is there as well, but he's carried by the mother. And there are a number of reflections that we could draw from, most especially this idea um, that as we are temples of the Holy Spirit, it may be that the mother is presenting the baby Jesus to us and asking us to care for him and to nurture him and to take him within ourselves, within our own temple. Um, that's one reflection. Um, but most especially, I think, what we want to talk about, what we want to uh, share from Scripture, is this idea of preparation and being ready for his coming. So we have this scripture verse, and it's from Luke, I believe. Yes, Luke right. 2, uh, 25 through 32. All right. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death 
before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So what we take away from this is an understanding of Simeon's preparation. Many years, we can well imagine, Simeon was not a young man. We know he was an old man near death, as he indicates here. Um, this experience, this encounter with Christ, um, is what he believes he, he um, has been, both been waiting for and what frees him now to, as he says, depart in peace. Um, and we should not minimize what it must have been like for Simeon both to wait in patience for many years. In perseverance. And, and, and with perseverance. And to prepare himself, to prepare himself for this understanding. We should keep in mind, I know we've had this conversation before, Francis, that there were no doubt, as there were every day, many, many people roaming about the grounds of the temple. This was true every day um, in, in ancient Israel. And yet Simeon, in addition to the woman we're about to read, um, recognized uh, in Jesus and in Joseph, and obviously in, um, in Mary, that the holy family was now present, and the one that he had been waiting for, his Lord and Savior, was also present. Um, and his preparation for that is what really leads us later into this conversation, continuing conversation on contemplative prayer. But before we move there, there's one other verse from Luke, just following actually what Francis just read. It's Luke 2, 36 through 38. Um, and this is the story of Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, you know, it is through this example of Simeon and Anna um, who fasted and prayed, uh, who were open to the Holy Spirit because they fasted and prayed. And that is our example, how we must fast and pray so that we may be open to the Holy Spirit, so we may see the hand of God in the little bitty, itty, itty bitty details of our life. And, you know, it'd be easy, Francis, for us to pass this off and say, well, my goodness, Anna... It says right here in what you just read, she never left the temple. Well, this is actually our challenge as Carmelites, isn't it? I mean, we are told in our rule that we are to stay within our cell. We can think of this as the physical place of a cell or the temple, but we also are invited to think of it as that spiritual dwelling of the interior, what St. Teresa of Avila refers to as that interior castle, the, the spot within us where the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, in fact, dwells. And we need to be in that space at all times. What does it mean? Not to be drawn away, not to be distracted, not to be drawn into the world, not to allow thoughts or anxieties or pressures, as we're going to read about a little bit later, to draw us out of that contemplative encounter. We can also see reference to the temple in that regard, and we are never 
actually supposed to be outside of that. What helps keep us there? Recollection, prayer, and fasting, as you already identified. Critically important to maintaining, uh, Francis, a reference that you made after we had concluded our conversation last week that I think is very important, that this isn't just about contemplative prayer. It is about a contemplative lifestyle. Right. We need to adopt a contemplative nature, a contemplative spirit, a contemplative demeanor. Choose whatever you, word you like. But contemplation is not an activity. It is a state of being. And we must begin to view it that way. And everything in our life in that context, if we're really going to begin to mature in contemplative prayer. And, of course, we know that there is a degree of prayer, a very deep, deep degree called contemplation, which is a gift of God. So uh, we use that term interchangeably many times. Um, but, you know, I want to focus on just a second, you know, just as... Um, Anna and Simeon received Jesus from the arms of Mary. So do we. She brings Jesus to us and then tells us, do whatever he tells you. And so we must receive, or, or, or when we receive Jesus from Mary's arms, I think um, she prepares our hearts to receive him. And um, this we do by wearing the brown scapular or by making a consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary in many ways. So, uh, you know, just keep that in your mind, that we want to receive Jesus and through this prayer and sacrifice, through the hands and heart of our mother. Uh, what a beautiful way to receive Jesus. Well, we're going to pick up on our conversation, keeping in mind what we just shared, what Francis just shared with regard to uh, both Simeon and Anna and the role of the Blessed Mother, uh, but we're going to continue in Chapter 4 of the book, again entitled Contemplative Provocations by Father Donald Haggerty, a conversation we began last week. This fourth chapter is entitled Contemplative Beginnings. And I want to just uh, caution us a little bit. As we know, um, contemplation is not the beginning of prayer. What Father Haggerty is referencing is uh, the beginning of the contemplative experience of prayer. But he emphasizes himself. This is not the beginning of prayer. It is rather the beginning of a much deeper stage of prayer. And he's usually preceded, as we discussed last week, by uh, perhaps long and painful stages of dryness, uh, purification, uh, a senses of abandonment at times, um, all of which are adequately described by St. John of the Cross, although I think Francis, as we discussed last week, Father Haggerty makes them a bit more approachable, perhaps, than John yes, um, uh, in some ways. Updated language, and, <laughs> and I think in little nuggets he, he dishes him out so that it's easier to uh, take those bites. <laughs> yeah, but in this stage of beginning of contemplative prayer, uh, we just re referenced St. John of the Cross, so I'm going to allow uh, Father Haggerty to reference St. John of the Cross uh, about what the soul may begin to experience at this stage of prayer. Some of the difficulty, some of the dryness, some of the trial. Francis, would you mind reading that? All right. It may seem that something has gone spiritually wrong. We can relate to that, right? <laughs> that unfaithfulness and neglect have damaged relations with God. The general malaise, is that the right word? Yes. <laughs> malaise, <clears throat> it is thought, must be due to offending God in some way. Wrongs committed, minor failures and mistakes become exceedingly troubling. The insecurity spreads beyond prayer, causing at times scrupulosity. Firmer resolutions in virtue are made, but the confusion continues unrelieved. 
Vigilance in avoiding sin, more sacrifice and self-giving to others, penitential practices. Nothing removes the insipid taste in prayer. The spiritual life becomes forced labor, an exercise of willpower out of proportion to ordinary tasks. Perseverance may keep a soul soldiering on, but it is likely to question its suitability for a serious pursuit of God. And, and of course, I want to clarify, those are not actually the words of St. John of the Cross, but Father Haggerty makes clear that that um, idea that he's just represented here largely comes from the writings of St. John of the Cross. Some of the things that are key that jumped off the page for me, Francis, are this idea that we will first presume that we've done something wrong and therefore we have the power to correct it. And <laughs> yeah. how do we correct it? We'll just be better persons, right? We'll just take it upon ourselves as an act of will to practice more penance, to be more deliberate. In our, certainly I, God will see my good effort and he'll reward me for it. The problem with that philosophy, with that idea, is it puts everything back on us. It puts everything back on our activity, on our action, on our achieving, if you will, our ends. And this is exactly what God, at this stage of prayer, is trying to disabuse us of. He's trying to get us to stop thinking that way. And while it's common during this time of dryness and desert wandering to want to find some other way to pray, you know, and, you know, we want to make some experience more effective, so maybe we return to an older way of prayer, uh, maybe formal prayer, or we may want to read more and get some intellectual satisfaction out of our time. Well, this is what Father Haggerty refers to as running for the shade because the dry exposure of the desert has just become too unbearable. But you know what? We gotta, we gotta be able to stand the heat or we gotta get out of the kitchen, right? <laughs> uh, that's exactly right. There, it, it is good to know, this is why we have the Council of St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, uh, Therese of Lisieux, all of whom lived this experience. And now through the words of, of Father Haggerty, we get to see, and of, of course, so many others. This isn't in any way limited to the Carmelite saints, though I would argue that as doctors of the church noted for their teachings on prayer, St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, are perhaps among the best guides, if in fact not the best guides. But it is important to note that we will also experience this same dryness in other aspects of our life. Father Haggerty notes that, as does St. John of the Cross. People around us don't seem to understand us anymore. They, they uh, will we'll experience relational disconnects, uh, where once uh, there appeared to be continuity in a relationship that we had with someone. Now, all of a sudden, we don't seem to be on the same wave. God is drawing us further and further out into this desert experience that Francis just indicated we're not going to be entirely comfortable with. And he does this uh, by beginning to remove things from our experience. Like consolations. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, but it's, it's consistent with Scripture. And again, uh, as St. John of the Cross does so well and so often, uh, Father Haggerty would encourage us, and this is actually a quote, uh, from Luke, not in uh, Father Haggerty's book, but I think supportive, Francis, of exactly what's happening to us on this stage of the journey, if you wouldn't mind reading that. Right, this is Luke 9, 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. You know, this is where Scripture has to be read in a fuller context. I mean, this is one of the shortfalls, frankly, of a fundamentalist perspective on Scripture. <clears throat> you read what it says, and it says what, it, what you read. Well, not exactly. If, 
Christ in this story. We know he's commissioning his apostles to go forward and preach the gospel. He's also commissioning them to a deeper relationship with himself by sending them out. That's what he's doing. He's sending them forth. We are all priest, prophet, and king. We heard about this right. in the scripture reading from this weekend. And we are called to be an apostolic people. For us as Carmelites, it fits perfectly in our apostolic contemplative nature. What does that mean? We have an apostolic nature that requires us to be witnesses to the gospel and to the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have a contemplative nature that we stay within all the time, as we said earlier. But in order to be successful here, we have to begin to leave things behind. We have to get to a level of simplicity. This is not about material things. This is not exactly uh, what the Lord is referring to. But in the context of prayer, he's saying you have to begin to leave behind the things that were sufficient when you were a child in prayer. The consolations that Francis mentioned, maybe comfort that we have something to read as opposed to I have to now sit in silence. Or I like uttering a formal prayer because it makes me feel like I'm doing something. The Lord would say to us, you're going to have to get out into the desert where it's barren and dry and empty and where you don't see across the horizon because the sand and the sun sort of combine to blind you at some distance. And this is uh, to teach us to recognize our poverty and our need for dependence on God. So previously we would have been depending in prayer, um, maybe on in the intellect, what we gain from prayers or from prayer formulas, or even um, uh, the feelings, of course, that we were talking about, or even a sense of accomplishment, or, you know, uh, look what I did, I spent an hour in adoration. So we have to leave all of these things behind because we need to be purified of these egotistical, uh, very subtle, prideful <laughs> um, poisons. <laughs> well, and you mentioned the intellect, um, and Father Hackerty, of course, will elaborate this further, as, as we will in our conversation, but this idea that we can form an image of God and be comfortable with it, right? Right. We, we become very comfortable with our own, uh, if you will, golden calf that we've created as an image of God. And God is saying, yeah, that's part of who I am, but not exactly. And so you need to leave that behind and keep moving out into the deeper desert for something more that I have ready to share with you. Well, what most marks this part of the journey in prayer is simply a life of silence. And of course, we've talked yes. about silence, so I don't want to go in detail. There are really 12 degrees of silence that the Desert Fathers talk about. Um, silencing in the mind, silencing of noise, silencing in the imagination, silencing of desire. All of these have to be brought to bear. We don't have to think about that. What it essentially says is we have to cling to God. Uh, and of course, the, for me, the patron saint of silence is Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, she received uh, much of that understanding from uh, St. John of the Cross. And in his Maxims and Councils, actually the 21st Maxim and Council, he says here, the father spoke one word, which was his son. And this word he always speaks in eternal silence. And in silence must it be heard by the soul. I think that's a powerful analogy, Francis, for uh, what it is that is happening to us at this stage of prayer. We have to be comfortable with silence. You know, for many of us in our generation, especially, um, who have iPads and, and uh, televisions and radios and all forms of entertainment running constantly, it's difficult to live with pure silence. But this is what, in our prayer life at least, we're being called to. And, you know, this is what Father Haggerty reminds us. 
Um, our own silence is not disagreeable to God. It does not repel him. He listens to the longing deep within our soul. With God, we must learn a new language of love in which words are often unnecessary. And it just reminds me, you know, the hunger of the heart. And, you know, uh, to not have the prayer, but you can pray unceasingly just by this ardor of your heart, this hunger, this longing. Yeah, and you know, you, you read there about God not being displeased. We so often think that if we just sat in silence, um, he's going to talk again about efficiency and effectiveness, but uh, that somehow we're not being productive. We're not getting anything out of it because we're not putting anything into the prayer. And it is at this stage that the soul most often begins to experience this concern uh, that somehow it may have displeased God. You know, that the reason for the dryness and the barrenness is, oh, I must have done something wrong. And back to our reflection a moment ago, um, we have to accept that even though we are a fallen people, that we have our deficiencies, thankfully we have reconciliation to, uh, to cure ourselves of that. But at the same time, God will not be offended by our simply sitting in his presence. Uh, from God's perspective, even this reaction uh, is a stage of progress. It suggests, in fact, that the soul is becoming increasingly concerned about God's feelings. In other words, that it doesn't have to project itself, but is more concerned about God and how he might receive or react uh, to something that the soul is doing. And, you know, Francis, that reminds me of a series of questions that you had actually brought up last week that I think are very important for us in this moment to think about with regard to uh, concern that we may be falling backwards. You want to walk us through some of that? Right. When, when God is calling you into this desert to, to leave off these familiar ways of praying, praying it's, it's very often that a soul feels like, whoa, how do I know I'm not regressing? Because it feels like if I'm just sitting there in silence, I'm not doing anything. And, you know, uh, you're experiencing this darkness and dryness and you're not used to it and something's going wrong and, and you're feeling like you're messing up. So how do you know you're not regressing? Well, you, we, I have eight questions here that you can consider. Number one, are you concerned about regressing? That's important. Um, do you desire to please the Lord? Three, are you committed to prayer even when it doesn't feel good or when Christ seems hidden? Are you determined to persevere? Four, what are the fruits of your prayer? Five, are you trying to avoid sin, maintaining a purity of conscience? Six, do you will to love God? Seven, are you hungry for God? Because aridity can be a grace with benefits. And lastly, and not only, but these are the ones I came up with, are you generous in sacrifice? Yeah, and it's also very important at this stage of our prayer not to continue to analyze what's happening. Now, it's appropriate in the early stages of meditation for us to use a scripture verse, for example, uh, to meditate on it, to converse with the Lord on it, uh, to open ourselves to silence. These are the traditional methods of meditative prayer, four stages of meditative prayer. Um, but at this stage, it would be inappropriate to sit and analyze back and forth, to look at our virtue, to make a resolution and to say, oh, this is how I'm going to change my behavior. One, because we don't have sufficient insight on what's really happening to us at this stage. And two, because the Lord is quite capable, uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit in our soul, of infusing, if you will, an understanding on our part as to what needs to be done. 
we are reminded that, yes, we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God, but we don't need to perfect ourselves. This is more the work of God, more the work of the Holy Spirit now, despite what we may perceive is happening to us in our prayer life. And I think the best scripture verse for this was, which is one I fall back on quite often, Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. We need to claim that scripture verse for ourselves. Now, Francis, there were some other quotes, I think, um, that Father Haggerty had with regard to this. Um, I, I want to catch up on those when we come back from the break, uh, because I think they elaborate in a little more detail uh, some of the specific uh, approaches, our, our psychological mindset and demeanor that we should have at this stage of prayer. So we're going to take a brief break and reminder that you are listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a, a, a program on Carmelite spirituality. Uh, and we do want to emphasize that. It's very important, I think, that uh, um, we make clear that we're focusing on Carmelite spirituality, different from other orders and other approaches to spirituality, though the basic principles are all the same. Um, our Carmelite saints have gifted us with a unique approach, uh, most especially to the conversation we're having today, which is on contemplative prayer. And again, we're continuing a series of conversations on a book by a Father Donald Haggerty entitled Contemplative Provocations, uh, which he uh, relies very heavily on the Carmelite saints in order to uh, produce a series of reflections on the various stages of contemplation, but the reflections themselves can be used very uh, uh, effectively, I think, for uh, helping us to both understand what is happening and to enter into this state of silence that we've been talking about is a necessary component of contemplative prayer. And, you know, as we're talking about this aridity that one starts to experience more significantly, um, it's important to realize that this longing for God is being purified so that um, uh, it is uh, more true, more pure to the Lord, and that this aridity exact is exhausting um, any of our own impulse to seek anything in prayer for ourselves. So it helps us to keep our focus on God alone rather than ourselves in the Lord. So um, uh, Father Haggerty says this about um, this aridity and contemplation. In one sense, contemplative life from its inception is a routing of every spurious form of love. And it takes place initially through these purifications, the steady burn of aridity brings a new depth of passion and love to prayer. The soul's longing turns more exclusively toward God in prayer when there is nothing other than God to draw desire. Yeah, and that's, you know, it sounds almost uh, counterintuitive, I guess is the right word. How is it that this dryness and aridity and sense of absence of Lord would increase the flame of love that burns within me. I can give you a, perhaps an elaborate theological explanation about the human psyche, how desire is created. Uh, John of the Cross, of course, is the master at explaining this, and we could elaborate on John's writings. It's perhaps best to say simply, 
You have to enter into this experience to begin to understand. And as Francis read a moment ago, and I think it's very important, we may want to recap uh, those uh, stages, uh, Francis, that indicate that, in fact, we are not falling backwards in prayer. Uh, the reason being that it's very important that though we will have a sense of regression, that we're moving backwards, that we're losing something. In fact, the very opposite is true. And it is, as Francis described, the very concern that we have that we may, in fact, be losing something and backing up that is the first indication that, in fact, we're not. Our desire for God has increased to the point where we say, oh my gosh, I think I may be offending him. I fear that I may have done something wrong. That very concern expresses an interior uh, deepening desire to please God in every way that we can. And so it's very important that we understand those uh, elements. Well, Father goes on with another quote, Father Haggerty, that is, goes on with another quote that I think is very important to this part of the conversation that reads, the dark certitudes of faith at this stage are the bedrock of contemplative prayer. And isn't this so St. John of the Cross? Faith is the only proximate means to salvation. Faith is the means for uh, our acquiring union. Uh, we've said many times, uh, St. Pope John Paul II, uh, who did his early dissertation on St. John of the Cross, wrote the entire dissertation on the role of faith in the writings of St. John of the Cross. We have to come to a deeper understanding of this idea of faith. It is not simply, oh, a, a continuous elaboration of the words, I believe, I believe, I believe. It is rather in the darkest moments an assurity, a, a sense of consolation and peace and, and understanding. It is not an intellectual experience at the end. Faith is not an intellectual experience, but it, it goes to a much deeper level. It is faith that purifies the intellect, but it must go beyond that and purifying our soul and deepening this uh, desire for an encounter with our God. And that's what St. John of the Cross is talking about. Well, he also says, Father Haggerty, it's always a certain desperation of need for God that draws his love in a deeper way. So when we see things are falling apart and we're doing everything we can <laughs> and we're feeling helpless and we're seeing our poverty, um, that draws us closer to God. Um, and we must stay um, and persevere in prayer, though. Do not give up prayer. Teresa Vavla tells us that. Father Hagerty goes on to say, God will often take from us precisely what we would keep for ourselves. He will deny to us what we most ardently desire. We will lose at times what we assume to be permanent and stable. These purifications are an early taste of love's demand to relinquish every sense of possession, every desire for anything other than God himself. It's drawing us into surrender <laughs> deeper, yeah. deeper. You know, this brings back that conversation we had once before, Francis, and we've probably um, spoken about it a number of times, maybe not always on the radio. But, you know, we approach God sometimes and we say, God, anything but this. Right. You can go <laughs> down any, you know, uh, hallway and open any door you want except the one on the end of the right there. You can't <laughs> door open Door number that. three, no. Yeah. Don't do door number three. <laughs> and I, I, I caution, I think I actually said this last week, don't ever say that to God. Don't ever say, you can have everything except this, because guess what he's going to go after? And he doesn't do it to be cruel. He does it because he knows that he has to remove the things that we are dependent on, that we measure our relationship with him through, that are anything other than him. 
If it's anything other than God at the very center of our lives, God is going to remove that. He'll do it gently if he, if he can, but he'll do it directly and violently if he has to because he knows it is an obstacle to union and it is an obstacle to the greatest gift that we can receive even though we may not be fully aware of the gift. So remember, all things work together for good for those who love him. <laughs> well, we must learn to proceed without our former um, uh, expectations, as we said, but also, Father... Haggerty goes on in the fifth chapter talking about emotion in prayer and the great role that emotion plays. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the significant role that it plays oftentimes in prayer. We must at this stage uh, be cleansed of a natural self-seeking nature and begin to develop a desire only for God, for what it is that he wants to give us. We can no longer measure our prayer by our emotional sense of satisfaction because that is self that gives us that experience. Father Haggerty tells us God's purpose in denying us emotional gratification is in part to purify a self-seeking impulse in our prayer. And I tell you, that can be very sneaky. Um, in that sense, it is a preliminary emptying of our soul prior to greater spiritual gifts. But it's more than a purification. This experience, too, confirms the penchant of God to hide himself, even surprisingly, from our enjoyment of his company. Yeah, and this is a, a critical point because, uh, as we said before, um, God's purpose in denying us this thing that we think is so critical to the relationship is precisely so that he can share with us a greater gift that we are blocked from receiving as a result of our unwillingness to give up that, that one special area. And I will say, I think it's very important that we incorporate uh, uh, St. Teresa's teaching here. This is not actually from Father Haggerty's book, but from uh, St. Teresa herself. And that is, this is the stage, Francis, at prayer where most souls begin to lose courage, right? right? There's darkness, there's aridity, there is perhaps a fear and a concern, a sense that something may have gone wrong. But whereas you describe the stages that demonstrate that, in fact, uh, though it is an evident, progress is still being made, what St. Teresa says is, it is at this stage where if the love is not sufficient, then we begin to lose courage and we start to fall away. And we say, well, if this is what the relationship is about, um, I'm just going to cool it for a while. I'm going to back off because it's become either too painful or unfamiliar to me or it's confusing or it's um, you know uh, uh, uncomfortable to a degree uh, that I simply don't have the courage to go on. And Father Haggerty tells us, indeed, the abandonment of prayer in this manner by those who aspired to a serious prayer life is one of the more hidden tragedies in the church. Boy, indeed. we could talk for uh, the rest of the program and another one on, on this topic, Francis. You'll recall in our early conversation, Father Haggerty talks about the importance of prayer, but he also almost, you, you can hear... Uh, I don't want to say the despair, but, but certainly the discouragement in his writing and, and therefore uh, in his voice about the absence of a clear understanding of the significance of prayer in our life. I think we as Carmelites are, are most responsible, uh, well, let's say among those most responsible for reiterating continuously, it's been done since uh, uh, the time of Christ, but reiterating in a continuous way the need for increasing and deepening an experience and an encounter with our God through prayer, most especially through contemplative prayer. And this is what Father Haggard is referencing, is the great tragedy 
of the lack of understanding of the value of prayer in our daily life. Every single day, our life should be filled with prayer, should be filled with those moments of silence, should be filled with brief ejaculatory expressions of love and appreciation for our Lord. It should be filled with begging and pleading for His will to be fulfilled in us. All of this, of course, is uh, one of the great tragedies of the modern church is the absence of an understanding of it. And also here, we must be careful about our relations with other people and be on guard against demanding of those around us that they fill the void we may be experiencing in our own soul. And this is where our worldly affairs can be negatively impacted by stages of our prayer life. See, if you don't understand what's happening in your prayer and you're feeling the void, you might blame your husband. <laughs> so you really uh, you need to be sensitive that this is a normal progression of prayer life. That is, uh, of course, if you're not sinning, because, you know, sin will take us back. But, you know, if, you, if you're trying to live the good life and you're trying to pray, you're trying to persevere, and yet you're having this great void, this dryness, um, God is present, although hidden, um, but to draw you into a purer love in good times, in bad, for better, for worse. Yeah, and an example of that, of course, is the other aspect that Father Haggard is bringing out here in, in regard to our relations in addition to what Francis is sharing. And that is that we will then, since God isn't fulfilling our expectations in terms of affirming us or uh, consoling us, we'll demand that from other people. Right. We may expect from our spouse, our children, our parent, our friend, hey, you have to validate me. You have to confirm me because I'm not getting it in my prayer life anymore. I was before when I read about how much God loved me and you know how the saints supported me, and now I'm not experiencing that. I'm in the state of dryness. So I turn to the people in my life and I say, then you must validate me. And here's how he describes this. He says, sometimes souls serious about spiritual life become demanding of affection and regard from others, desirous to draw others close to themselves. It is a flaw that may have a background in a prayer life that resisted purification. The connection is not difficult to perceive. Purification in prayer is self-emptying. Long aridity, if undergone with perseverance, burns away our desire for satisfaction. The dryness is a humbling deprivation, but some souls cannot bear this impoverishment. So what he's saying here is that we can no longer sustain the purification that the Lord is uh, bringing us through the cleansing he's bringing us through. And we say, no, 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 I, I need to go back uh, to where I was receiving great consolation. Since God is not going to be forthcoming with that, um, we will look for it in other people. And there's a great danger in doing that, not only the prospect of it um, significantly impeding our prayer progress, but also in damaging human relationships uh, uh, for those closest to us. So what do we do? How do we respond? Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for putting that on me. Well, uh, unfortunately, what Francis is doing is deferring the delivery of the terrible message because <laughs> here's what we must do. Uh, very simply and very straightforward. And again, this is right from the writings of St. John of the Cross. Self-denial, renunciation, and mortification. Right. Now, since that doesn't sound particularly appealing, let's, ex let's explore it a little bit. Um, Self-denial. What does that mean? Don't think so much of it as self-denial, but rather putting the other person first. Putting everybody, in fact, John of the Cross would say, I might as well deliver right between the eyes. John would say, put everybody before yourself. Think of the needs of others. Certainly not something I contend that I do well, but I understand it intellectually, Francis. I understand it. I just don't have the capacity yet in grace to live it. 
renunciation. Again, don't think so much of renunciation of the things I want, but think rather dispensing with the things I don't need so that I can receive what I most need, which is what God wants to give me. Mortification. Mortification, in effect, is releasing us from distraction. It is removing those things that are denying my ability or impeding my ability to enter into that uh, experience with the living God and receive the greatest gift that he has to give me. So we have to sort of flip these around and see them in a perhaps more positive light. But again, just to make sure that we affirm um, the uh, connection in all of this to our Carmelite teaching, even Father Haggerty here, uh, Francis, makes reference to the fact that um, this is really uh, from Carmel. This teaching that he's sharing with us is really from Carmel. I think he makes a direct reference to that. Yes. Emotional consolation does not have to disappear from prayer. It is God's choice whether he wants to grant it or not. But clearly, it has to fade and eventually cease as a desired gratification in prayer. It is the longing for it that has to be burnt dry from our soul. This has sometimes been called a Carmelite rule of prayer. And yet often, even perhaps by them, it is little understood or accepted. But it is deleterious to ignore this rule and to expect differently from a loving God. His love may not coincide with our prior notions of God. So we can't judge God by our own standards yeah, again. Yeah, and, and again, a little bit of consolation there, right? He says, listen, um, you may lose these things. You may have to go through these periods, but they may not be as difficult as you anticipate. God will still be there providing consolation when it's necessary. What he's trying to remove is the desire for them. If he chooses to, uh, uh, you know, sort of hold us up for periods of time, um, we have to be okay that it's his decision and not let the centerpiece of our desire override that. So the final note in this section is simply the reminder that, you know, our prayer should not be dependent on emotion or any kind of consolation felt experience, just as pure love is not dependent on emotion but on a pure movement of our will. And that is why it, it is true that the will is purified by love. Yeah, and um, that's, of course, represented in the programming that we've done before where we talk about the purification of the intellect, the memory, and the will. don't want to elaborate here. It's perhaps too lengthy a discussion, but um, the will, we know, is purified ultimately by love. The will is what generates all of human desire, and it must be perfected, it must be um, directed, if you will, uh, by um, love in all cases. It must be a very pure love. And that's largely what we've been describing here is the, the Lord's work at purifying uh, our love so that we can, in fact, purify our will. Well, the last section I want to discuss today, Francis, uh, chapter 6 from Father Haggerty's book is actually titled The Mind in Prayer. This reminds me again, although he didn't make reference to it, but it always comes to mind when we talk about the mind in prayer. One of the most challenging issues that we're going to face in this deepening stage of prayer, of course, are our wandering thoughts. And this has been true for great saints throughout the centuries, and was perhaps best described by St. Teresa of Avila as the wild horses of her oh, thoughts. Oh, yeah, I know those wild horses. <laughs> Well, the question is, how do we control these wild horses? I think everybody wrestles with this question. I've had so many people in spiritual direction who say to me, you know, the minute I sit down and I take a couple deep breaths and I try to get quiet, I might have a scripture verse to reflect on, and the minute I get to that, 
you know, moment of silence, boom, the wild horses are let loose and I'm <laughs> so all over the place. what do you tell the them, Mark? <laughs> Our well, audience wants to know. <laughs> well, uh, what will not work for us is perhaps the best place to begin. What will not work for us is to try to somehow actively exclude the thoughts. It's like, don't think of the pink elephant and immediately, of course, the image <laughs> right. is, is forced into your mind. We should also not try to forcibly direct our thoughts towards God. In other words, oh, I know as an act of will, if I'll just think about God, I know that I can do this. Neither of these processes will work for us. Instead, our prayer has to move away from thought altogether and, Francis, toward an experience of what? Love, love, love. love. It's all about love. (laughs) And Father Haggerty tells us no thought in itself, even the thought that he is looking at us with love, brings him closer. Only a thought accompanied by a blind, passionate desire toward God can do so. And then we are not merely thinking about God. We're loving, right? Well, and I'll go back to um, a point I I did raise earlier, and that is this idea that somehow prayer should uh, be evaluated by its its efficiency or effectiveness. You know, we want to evaluate it. And, of course, um, I, I liken this to... Um, a, a relationship that we would have with another person. Certainly, uh, there are times when a relationship, any relationship, will require some effort on our part, commitment, sacrifice. Uh, we must be willing to, uh, at times, practice self-renunciation, words similar to what we've been discussing. We must have a discipline to, to affect a good relationship with another person. But ultimately, there comes a time when true love is simply known with another person, deep within our souls, and it's no longer... Uh, does it require the use of words in order to be known by the other person? You know this with a spouse, you know this with a child, you know this with a parent, this experience, that you can just be in the room with them. And there's an expression of love usually uh, affected by a glance, uh, by a gaze, maybe um, you know, by a touch. But, but certainly words are not required at its deepest level of expression. This is exactly what um, uh, Father Haggerty and, of course, the Carmelite saints would described to us happens at this level of contemplative prayer. In prayer, it may be more important to encounter what cannot be done, what cannot be resolved on, except by a work that is directed from God's hand. Sometimes we forget how little we can do on our own, in prayer, or outside the time of prayer. I think I jumped the gun. No, no, no. Actually, I think that's exactly what we wanted to reflect on at this moment, this idea um, that that outside of prayer sometimes uh, we, we have this deeper experience. Um, you know, in the end, suggestions for what we can do to overcome these distractions that Francis was pressing me on, okay. uh, such as uh, are, are, are practical, and here are some of them. Um, we might use, simple as I said before, ejaculatory prayers. Oh my God, I love you. Oh my God, I desire you. Gazing at a crucifix, repeating a single scriptural verse. All of these in and of themselves can be good. They can be useful. But I caution you, as does Father Haggerty, I do our Carmelite saints, they can also become an obstacle to simply abandoning ourselves to a more pure fiat. This mm-hmm. word fiat, Francis, you, you like this word, I you use do. it, you describe it well. Explain it's, this it's to the us. the Blessed Mother saying, thy will be done. Whatever God chooses, that's what she chooses. So in, in union with her fiat, we say fiat, and then we abandon ourselves into the Lord's hands and... Uh, take the next right step each moment of our life, right? And hoping that we're doing the right thing. (laughs) But God makes straight of our crooked line, so not to worry. Uh, 
again, I want to emphasize that the, the idea of prayer at this stage, we've sort of moved beyond meditation, we've sort of moved beyond perfecting ourselves, we've sort of moved beyond this idea that I have to have a resolution that I make, that my behavior has to change in some way. Um, and, and in fact, um, we want to move beyond thoughts themselves. Uh, he says on page uh, 94, I think, Francis, uh, something about this idea of moving beyond uh, thoughts. There can be thoughts about God in prayer or an absence of thoughts, but in either case, the intellect's primary usefulness in prayer is when it exercises a blind certitude of intense faith. This becomes a conduit, as it were, for being drawn to a more intense love for God. Our thought must learn over time to enjoy less in prayer and to embrace darkness without protest, remembering that every silencing of thought invites a humbling of the mind. Only perhaps in a deeper humility of intellect does our will choose for God with greater purity and love. Well, and again, just to round this out with one final scripture verse, um, certainly we're not, by the way, suggesting that we should never think about Christ. St. Teresa of Avila is one of the most adamant uh, proponents of our keeping our mind on Christ as it related to the most profound moments in his life, his abandonment, um, the humanity of Christ during his crucifixion. What we are saying is don't become focused on it as a vehicle to a deeper encounter with Christ. It has to move beyond thought. Why? Because ultimately we know the Spirit prays within us. And I'm reading from Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, since we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. In the end, there are only really two considerations of the mind that matter in the moment of our prayer. Our own nothingness and God, infinite goodness. You know, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection um, famously said, effectively, uh, we should approach the infinite, uh, infiniteness of God like poor beggars. For indeed, this is what we truly are before the incomprehensible creator of the universe. So let's not get discouraged. On the contrary, this should lead us to the adoration of the infinite goodness of God. Well, and I'm going to invite you, Francis, to lead us to that adoration of infinite goodness as you close us out in prayer. Uh, and thank you again for this conversation today. This is a um, prayer for times of interior darkness. It's from a book, um, The Practice of Contemplation According to St. John of the Cross by James W. Kinn, K-I-N-N. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, I am content to dwell in this dark night in which all my faculties are helpless. This darkness is my friend, for only in this night can your new light become visible. This silence is the way to wisdom, for only in complete quiet can the gentle voice of your spirit be heard. This helplessness is the only way forward. For you will carry me where I am unable to go. This emptiness is the way to fullness. The more I acknowledge this void, the more you prepare to fill it. This weakness is my strength. For only when I know that I am nothing and you are God, will you give me your power. In the well, name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A brief reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Carmelite Spirituality on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in your home until we're with you again next week.
God bless.